Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor at the end of the podcast and visit www.theresidentreview.com for all of our outlines. We'll be continuing our quick hit series, which reviews questions from the last five to eight years of our in-service exam. And today we'll be discussing maxillofacial injuries and anatomy. So Rachel, do you wanna get us started off with some anatomy? I would love to. All right, so this is a little hodgepodge of anatomy, but these are all testable principles. So remember, there are seven bones that comprise the orbit, the ethmoid, the frontal, the lacrimal, the maxilla, the palatine, and the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid. The lateral orbital wall is made up of the zygoma and greater weaning of the sphenoid, and the medial orbital wall is made up of the ethmoid and the palatine bones. The facial buttresses, so there's vertical and horizontal buttresses. The vertical buttresses include the nasomaxillary, the zygomaticomaxillary, or ZM, the pterygomaxillary, the condyle, and the posterior mandibular ramus. So remember that those are the vertical buttresses. The horizontal buttresses include the frontal bone, zygomatic bone, the maxillary bone, and the mandibular buttresses known as the mandibular arch. So that establishes the horizontal width of the face. To diagnose an ocular parasympathetic nerve injury, you'll see dilation of the pupil. You will not be responsive to light stimulation, and there will be no consensual response to light. And remember that the ocular parasympathetic nerve travels within the oculomotor nerve and inferior oblique muscle. And this can be injured during reduction or fixation of fractures in the region of the orbit or zygoma and topical epinephrine can also result in this phenomenon. So keep that in mind. So there are optic nerve injuries, otherwise known as the Marcus gun people in which you'll, you will still have a consensual light response affected. eye will still somewhat constrict. So this can be caused by either central retinal artery occlusion or more commonly uh, shear forces of the optic nerve. That's what we see in the trauma setting. So the flashlight is first shown into the normal eye, and this will cause consensual constriction of both pupils. And then both eyes dilate when the light is taken away from the unaffected eye and shown into the affected eye. And this, you can see not only this, but color perception abnormalities. Remember that the cribiform plate is the horizontal component of the ethmoid bone and a fracture of this bone may tear the meninges and allow leakage of CSF. The cribiform plate supports the olfactory bulb and creates passageways for the olfactory nerves. So smell might also be affected. For nasal innervation, I know we've talked about this a lot, but we'll go over it again. So the anterior ethmoid nerve supplies a nasal tip, the infratrochlear and infraorbital nerves innervate the nasal sidewalls, the lateral branch of the pterygopalatine innervate the upper and middle turbinates, and the medial branch of the pterygopalatine innervates the septum. Hannah, why don't you take us through some general trauma principles, syndromes, and start us off with some trauma? there's a very high risk of mortality in older patients. They have longer hospital stays, more severe injuries. There's a higher incidence of mid-facial fractures and orbital and condylar fractures. There's also a higher incidence of non-facial trauma. So just be aware in the trauma bay to, to look for other injuries. The five criteria that are predictive of a facial fracture are a GCS less than 14, malocclusion, bony step-offs, periorbital swelling or contusion or uh, tooth absence. We'll talk about a couple of syndromes. First is the superior orbital fissure syndrome. 
And this is when you have extension of the fracture into the superior orbital fissure. The oculomotor, trochlear, abducens, and ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve enter through the superior orbital fissure. And this is formed by the greater and lesser wings. And this can cause paralysis of extraocular movements and levator palpebrae leading to ptosis, anesthesia of the forehead, and a fixed pupil. The orbital apex syndrome is like the superior orbital fissure syndrome. However, it'll also have blindness. Now we'll talk about some trauma principles. So for lacerations, avulsions of the scalp typically occur in the loose alveolar layer. The galea is the strength layer, and the pericranium can accept skin flaps. The subcutaneous tissue contains the nerves and vessels that supply the scalp. Often, these patients will have canalicular injuries, and if identified intraoperatively, you can place silicone stents and leave them in place for three to six months. If there's a mid-cheek laceration, you'll think of the possibility of a buccal branch injury or injury to Stinson's duct. And again, Stinson's duct can be cannulated and you can close over a stent. A Cialisil should be managed conservatively with pressure dressings, limited PO intake, aspiration, and anti-Cialagogues. And most of these resolve within two to three weeks. For parotid duct injuries, you manage these with stents ligation for extensive injuries, or a superficial prodidectomy for chronic fistula. And then we'll next talk about frontal bone fractures or frontal sinus fractures. So the frontal sinus fracture carries a 45 to 65% risk of an intracranial injury like a TBI. If the anterior table is fractured with an intact frontal sinus, you'll repair the frontal table. You'll perform obliteration if there's obstruction or if the nasofrontal duct is involved. You'll perform cranialization if the posterior table is comminuted or if there is injury to the posterior table and a CSF leak. And to do this, we'll have our neurosurgery colleagues uh, be involved, but it involves performing a craniotomy, a dural repair, and a pericranial flap for nasal duct obliteration. And this entails removal of the posterior table, closure of the dura, obliteration of the sinonasal tract, and the sinus mucosa. If there is a non-displaced fracture with a CSF leak, you can observe this for five to seven days, give the patient antibiotics. However, if it does not resolve, spinal drainage may be required after a few days of observation. And if the sinus floor is fractured medial to the supraorbital foramen, the nasofrontal duct may be injured. And an annual CT is required for all frontal sinus fractures. Rachel, do you want to talk about NOE fractures? I would love to. So there are different fracture patterns for NOE. This was defined by Markowitz and Manson. And there's five fractures that must exist. A nasal fracture, an inferior orbital rim fracture, an ethmoid fracture, a nasomaxillary buttress fracture, and a maxillary frontal process fracture. Type 1 NOE is a single central fragment with minimal displacement and no disruption of the medial canthus. Type 2, you'll have comminution outside of the medial canthus. In management for type 1 and type 2, you want to consider nasal dorsum support, and you can otherwise plate the fracture, but there's no need for medial canthal reconstruction. Type 3 includes comminution of the fracture, including the medial canthus. And management includes reconstruction of the medial orbital wall, bone grafting to the nasal dorsum and transnasal wiring of the medial canthus, and you want to overcorrect. 
Patients with NOE fractures will exhibit telecanthus, impaction of the nasal bridge, hematoma of the eyelids, and lacrimal injuries can often be seen, but you want to observe these as 90% will see improvement. If they don't see improvement after several months, you can do it, perform a dacrocystography, which we'll talk about in a minute, followed by a dacrocystorhinostomy if the patient doesn't have resolution of their symptoms. Remember that a transnasal canthopexy are used for avulsions of the medial canthal ligament with bone. You want to place these wires posterior and superior to the insertion of the medial canthal tendon. So behind and above the lacrimal nasal fossa. And remember that your bony intercanthal distance should be about 16 to 23 millimeters. And then remember that the medial canthal tendon consists of three limbs. The first limb is a prominent anterior limb that inserts medially on the anterior lacrimal crest. The second is a thinner posterior limb that attaches to the posterior lacrimal crest. The third is a vertical limb of fascia that inserts on the medial orbital rim inferior to the nasofrontal suture. So next we'll talk a little bit about nasolacrimal duct injury since we alluded to this. So if a patient comes in with excessive tearing and you're suspecting a lacrimal duct injury, you want to first perform the Jones test. And we have been tested on this. So Jones test first prior to any intervention. There are two parts of the test. The Jones test one evaluates lacrimal outflow under normal physiologic conditions. So you'll place fluorescein dye and you'll instill this in the conjunctival cornice. The dye is recovered after five minutes by asking the patient to blow their nose. If there's no dye, then you want to move on to perform a Jones two. In a Jones two, the residual fluorescein is flushed out from the conjunctival sac. And then again, you ask the patient to expel drainage from their pharynx. So no dye means complete obstruction. Like I said, if you have postoperative obstruction of the nasolacrimal duct, you'll perform a dacrocystorhinostomy um, for a negative Jones one and Jones two. And this signifies distal obstruction past the lacrimal sac. Um, so not involving the proximal canalicular system. If you have obstruction at the canalicular level or a proximal obstruction, you're going to perform a conjunctivo dacrocystostomy. And if you have obliteration of the sac, you can perform a conjuncto rhinostomy. So by and large, we will be tested on dacrocystorhinostomy for obstruction of the nasolacrimal system. All right, Hannah, why don't you take us through the orbital floor? Another great topic. So there are several approaches to be aware of and that we're tested on. So the subciliary approach has a scar on the orbital septum. The preceptal transconjunctival incision uh, is one in which the incision is made through the conjunctiva below the tarsus of the lower lid. So the capsulopalpebral fascia is incised and the plane between the orbicularis and the septum is entered and then the periosteum is exposed. The transcurrencular approach, the incision is made between the medial orbital septum and Horner's muscle, and this is used for fractures of the medial orbital wall. So one complication you can see is paresthesias of the cheek after an eye blowout fracture, and this is due to injury to the infraorbital nerve within the orbital floor. The infraorbital nerve courses within the orbital canal along the floor of the orbit and exits the body of the zygoma through the infraorbital foramen. So if you have a defect larger than two centimeters in the orbital floor after reduction of the ZMC, this necessitates repair. And for orbital blowout fractures, indications for surgical management include a floor defect greater than two centimeters or greater than 50% of the orbital floor. Also, if you have an abnormally low vertical height of the globe, presence of other fractures or symptomatic diplopia, and a positive forced duction test. Other indications for surgery, of course, entrapment of extraocular muscles, 
significant in ophthalmos and lateral orbital wall displacement. An emergent indication for surgery is a trapdoor fracture, and these often present as minimally displaced orbital fractures. However, there is entrapment of the of the inferior rectus muscle. And so again, the CT will show minimal displacement, but the patient will be bradycardic, will have nausea and vomiting. And then in terms of urgent indications for surgery, if the patient has persistent diplopia, early in ophthalmos, vertical dystopia, or a large fracture size, all of these necessitate surgery within 24 hours. So Hannah, one thing to note is that sometimes they will test you on both the answer choices will have indications for operative management, including diplopia and size. And it's the size is the firm indicator for operative management, which is greater than two centimeters because by and large, the diplopia resolves over time. Okay. Good to know. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, And as Rachel was saying, diplopia is common and should generally be observed and this should resolve with time. Um, It can be observed up to 10 to 14 days if there's no entrapment. Uh, If there is orbital trauma with loss of the globe and lids, the best option for the patient is an orbital prosthesis. Ocular prosthesis requires a functional lid. For nasal bone fractures, the first thing you want to do on exam is to look for a septal hematoma because these need to be trained immediately. And if there is marked edema, wait for close reduction of nasal bone fractures in three to five days and splint the nasal pyramid. Osteotomies should be delayed in acute fractures because nasal collapse may result. A mucosal tear is most significant sign of a septal fracture followed by deviation. Rachel, do you want to take us through zygoma and ZMC fractures? Yes. So next is the zygoma fracture. And what we're most commonly tested on for zygomatic fractures is the Gillies approach. And this is the operative approach or technique for operative fixation of zygomatic fractures. And so you'll incise skin sub Q in the temporal area, and then you'll incise the superficial temporal fascia and the deep temporal fascia. And then you'll go between the deep temporal fascia and the temporalis muscle. You'll go in that plane and raise the fractured arch. So remember the frontal branch of the facial nerve lies under the superficial temporal fascia, or, you know, otherwise known as the temporal parietal fascia. Remember that the coronoid process lies deep to the temporalis muscle. And so that's in close continuity when you're reducing these fractures and is oftentimes one of the operative indications because the patients are unable to open their mouths. And then zygomatic osteotomies, these are indicated to provide increased malar projection in those who have scarring or inadequate vascularization of soft tissues. So in patients that have had previous panfacial fractures, um, you can perform a zygomatic osteotomy to give increased malar projection. You never want to perform this in the acute setting. And I think we were tested on which patient is a good candidate for this. And it was a patient that had a previous panfacial fracture. CMC fracture, otherwise known as a zygomatico-maxillary complex fracture. This is one of the higher order fractures on the scale of the panfacial fractures that we'll talk about. And it contains four buttresses involved, which we are frequently tested on the zygomatico-frontal suture or the ZF, the zygomatico-maxillary suture, the zygomatico-temporal or zygomatico-sphenoid suture, plus or minus the infraorbital rim. Remember, you want to use the lateral orbital wall as a set point for reduction, which is the sphenoid. And then um, stable fixation, you need stable fixation of your ZF suture, your ZM suture, and your inferior orbital rim. 
the main width of the midface is through the zygomatic arch, like we were talking about earlier via projection of the malar eminence. And then if you have a orbitozygomatic complex, so when you're evaluating these patients, you'll typically see a downward cant. So a depressed and rotated segment laterally due to the lateral canthus and unopposed pull of the masseter, which we've been tested on. So depresses and rotates laterally. Enophthalmos can be associated with inadequate reduction of the ZM suture most frequently. And ZMC fractures without good reduction typically have a concomitant NOE fracture that must be reduced first. And so you want to keep that in mind. And then if you have a large defect of the orbital floor after your reduction of the ZMC, remember greater than two centimeters necessitates orbital floor fixation. And then if you're greater than eight weeks out from a ZMC fracture, remember you'll require an osteotomy like a Lafort one and MMF to address any sort of residual malocclusion. All right, Hannah, why don't you finish us out with some Lafort fractures and complications? All right. Leaving the fun to me. So for a Lafort fracture, panfacial fractures carry the risk of concomitant cervical spine injury and in up to 10% of patients. So the principle for a Lafort is establishing pre-traumatic maxillomandibular occlusion. So if rigid fixation is applied prior to fracture site disimpaction, the patient will have an open bite on removal of MMF. The impacted segment should be mobilized prior to application of rigid fixation. So again, pan facial fractures have a 10% risk of concomitant cervical spine injury and mandibular fractures have a 10% risk of incompetent cervical injury. So a Lafort 1, you have a maxillary sinus fracture involving the medial and lateral buttresses and the, and the pterygoid plates. A Lafort 2 is an NOE fracture, orbital floor and infraorbital rim, as well as the zygomatico-maxillary buttresses and the posterior pterygoids. A Lafort 3 involves an NOE, the orbital floor, zygomaticosphenoid articulation, the lateral orbital wall, the zygomaticofrontal buttresses, zygomatic arch, and the pterygoid plate. In patients with panfacial fractures, you'll reduce and fix the mandible first to establish posterior height prior to ORIF of the maxillary segments. So now we'll review some complications. So inophthalmos is posterior displacement of the globe, and this is most commonly caused by an increase in bony orbital volume or disruption of orbital ligaments. Inophthalmos can also be caused by inadequate fracture reduction. You can see inophthalmos from a ZMC fracture, from an orbital floor fracture, or a medial orbital wall fracture. And this can be seen as shortening of the palpebral fissure and deepening of the tarsal fold. Next. Right, Hannah. So just real fast, we commonly get tested on the most frequent cause of enophthalmos, and it is from inadequate fracture reduction. I know you said that, but I just want to emphasize. Thank you. So ectropion is caused by edema and scar contracture to the orbital septum, and this can be caused by the use of a subciliary incision. So incision into the first eyelid crease is recommended to prevent this complication because it preserves the innervation to the pretarsal portion of the bicularis. So treatment for ectropion first is to massage the area. If this persists for more than six months, you'll perform horizontal shortening of the lower lid, lateral canthoplasty, and release of scar tissue, and an application of a frost suture. A nasal septal cartilage graft can be used to support the posterior lamella. 
The next complication is a traumatic optic neuropathy, and this can result from mechanical or ischemic causes, and it is most likely from sheer force on the optic nerve. A retrobulbar hematoma is very important to recognize, and if you recognize it, you'll perform a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis, and symptoms are pain and a reduction in visual acuity. And the therapeutic window for treatment is 90 minutes. This can result in blindness with increased orbital pressure and proptosis. You'll treat a retrobulbar hematoma before fixing an orbital floor fracture. So the next complication is a hyphema, and this requires an urgent consult to ophthalmology, and it's when you have blood in the anterior chamber of the eye, and this can lead to glycoma. We are also tested on a post-traumatic carotid cavernous fistula, and you'll see a pulsatile proptosis, you'll have ocular orbital erythema, chemosis, diplopia, headaches, and vision loss. And this is due to an abnormal connection between the internal carotid artery and the cavernous sinus. And this can lead to blindness, paralysis, and death. And it is associated with basilar skull fractures. So you'll obtain a cerebral angiography and then embolize. It can also occur as a result of an orbital roof fractures, and you can enter the middle cranial fossa and allow for communication of the cavernous sinus and the carotid artery. And you may see an associated brewing and have ipsilateral blindness. A septal hematoma can cause pressure necrosis of the nasal mucosa and lead to a septal perforation and saddle nose deformity if not treated. So this should be immediately drained with an 11 blade or a needle. However, an incision is preferred. These often develop between the muco perichondrium and the cartilage. So you make an L-shaped incision and give the patient antibiotics. If a patient in the ED has massive nasal oral hemorrhage, you'll first protect the airway, remember the ABC, so you'll intubate the patient, and then you can place anterior and posterior nasal packing. So complications of frontal sinus fractures include mucoceles from an undiagnosed nasal duct obstruction. A mucoceal will present with headache and frontal sinus pain. Other complications include sinusitis, meningitis, and these are generally more acute. A mucopyrocele is an infected mucoceal, and you'll treat these by removing them with a diamond-cut rotational burr, and the duct can be obliterated with fat or bone grafts or with a soft tissue flap. If it is infected, use bone or soft tissue. Rachel, do you want to go over some tooth anatomy? Oh, yes. All right, so I'm going to quickly just go over a few facts of the teeth, not all the anatomy because we are not dentists. Remember that the dentin protects the pulp. The visible part of the tooth is the crown and the inner is the root and consists of the outer cementum, inner dentum and pulp. Sensitivity to cold and pain is due to exposed dentin, which can become infected. Entry to the pulp requires removal of the tooth itself and fracture to the alveolar bone requires arch bars. Periapical and dentigerous cysts, which we've already talked about in our previous lectures. So the periapical cyst, remember, is the most common odontogenic cyst, and it's when a non-viable tooth becomes infected, and you'll have necrosis of the pulp and a radiolucency at the apices of the tooth on an x-ray. A dentigerous cyst forms around the top of an unerupted tooth. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about cranioplasty in this lecture. So cranioplasty has higher rates of complications in those groups with large endocranial dead spaces or with frontal orbital decompression. So we had a test question that was the highest risk craniotomy or cranioplasty, and that was in the frontal region. 
Remember that hydroxyapatite is contraindicated in radiated fields. It's not recommended in the pediatric population. Methyl methacrylate has higher compression strength. Remember it is an exothermic reaction, so it can burn the patient. It's low cost and does not result in ingrowth. It is more susceptible to infection and it can be prefabricated with planning. And then peak, which is polyether ether ketone is what we commonly use here at Duke. Now remember that infection is the most common complication from using a peak implant. Yes. I'll just add that it comes up in some questions that autologous bone is best used in pediatric patients. So we don't use hydroxyapatate. Uh, the best choice is autologous bone if you can use it. Yes. And then remember their skull fractures can occur with dural lacerations in children. And this can become what we call growing skull fracture or GSF. And, like, and you want to make sure you repair the dura at the time of the injury. Other miscellaneous facts. So the frontal sinus develops at two years. Treatment of a tracheostomy scar includes scar excision and reapproximation of the strap muscles, which we were tested on. And that is the sternohyoid and sternothyroid. And then for massive transfusion protocol, which I think is important, this is transfusion of FFP and packed red blood cells at a ratio of one to one, as well as discontinuation of crystalloids. And so you want to begin blood rather than crystalloids, give FFP and PRVCs at a, a ratio of one to one, and you want to deliver this via rapid transfuser and a blood warmer. All right. That is it. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.